welcome to Let's Talk Social Work, the podcast from the British Association of Social Workers. This is space for conversation, discussion with social workers, the individuals they support, and colleagues working in related professions. We consider the key matters affecting social workers as we explore contemporary issues with a focus at the local, national and global levels. Hello, my name is Andy McClanahan. Welcome to episode 48 of Let's Talk Social Work. Not long ago, the podcast celebrated its second birthday. And today, my guests and I are returning to an issue which was the focus of our first ever episode, the role of social workers in disaster situations. We're going to be exploring the themes outlined in the book, Out of the Shadows, the role of social workers in disasters, which was published earlier this year by Critical Publishing. And I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr. Angie Bartoli and Mara Stratulis, who, along with Rebecca Pierre, edited the book, and Margaret Aspinall, one of a number of individuals who generously shared their personal experiences in Out of the Shadows. Margaret is chair of the Hillsborough Family Support Group. Margaret's son, James, at the age of 18, was one of the 97 people who were unlawfully killed in the FA Cup semi-final match between Liverpool and Nottingham Forest on the 15th of April, 1989. Angie is Principal Lecturer in Social Work at Nottingham Trent University and a former Vice Chair of Baswa England, and Maris is National Director of Baswa England. Welcome, Margaret. Welcome, Angie. Welcome, Maris. Margaret, how are you feeling? How are you doing? I'm doing fine, thank you. Great, great. It's lovely to have you here. And uh, Margaret, you are sitting in the Basel office in Birmingham, isn't that right? Yes, that's correct. Wonderful. And Maris, you're sat beside. Uh, Margaret, welcome. It's great to have you back. Oh, it's great to be back, Andy. And it's a real pleasure to be sitting next to Margaret. And we're meeting in person for the first time during the last two years. So it's a real pleasure. Great. It doesn't feel like two years since we made our episode, sure it doesn't? No, not since we made the episode, but since I last saw Margaret. And I'm sorry, Andy, but she yes. takes precedent. So, you know. That's fine. Don't worry. I, I, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. Angie, how are you doing? That's lovely. I'm good. Yeah, I'm really good. Really looking forward to a conversation. Um, I'm sat in my home in Nottingham. So I'm jealous of Maris, who's got um, Margaret all to herself, but really looking forward. It's just lovely to see you, even if it is on the screen, Margaret. Um, And just thank you again for um, giving your time. Really appreciate it. You're very welcome. So in this episode, we're going to hear an awful lot about Margaret's story. But before we begin, Angie, I want to start with the story behind the book. I want to know what led to the writing of Out of the Shadows. Can you tell me a bit about how the book came about and also how long it was in the making? Mm, Of course, yeah. So it was whilst I was vice chair for Basra England. So Basra England were doing a lot of important work around... um, amplifying the role of social workers in disasters and um, one of those was it, it was a, a a seminar in in Durham University back in June 2018 um, and I remember going to that um, seminar where we were talking about kind of what is a disaster had anyone experienced a disaster and I think most of us sat there quite nonchalantly thinking no we're really lucky we're we haven't been involved in a disaster but as we started thinking about it many of us had you know either through 
volunteer work we'd done or kind of on a personal level. And it was during those breaks that I started listening to people with lived experience like Margaret, but also social workers. Sort of during the breaks, they were chatting about their their experiences. And it struck me that it was kind of one of the first times those colleagues and, and friends had been given the opportunity to just their untold stories to be heard. And I just felt compelled that we needed to, we could capture that in some way. And was there a catharsis in sharing those stories? Yeah, I think there was. I think there was, um, I think the catharsis was probably in that recognition, you know, somebody actually recognising the role and the, you know, from, from people with lived experience, somebody listening to the impact of that um, and how it, it stays with us after many, many years. And Angie, what about your own experience? Have you worked in a disaster situation? Yeah, so um, I've done some voluntary work in um, Romania. So that was um, the uh, post the revolution. And that that had a, a huge impact on me in terms of I kind of went out quite naively as a young person, um, not really knowing what to expect, but it had a huge impact on, on me. Um, and that's probably what developed my my interest, but also kind of on a personal level, been um, very close to disasters, in, you know, in, in terms of rail crashes that have happened. Um, it, you know, um, the King's Cross rail crash, I was a train before that and th- those sorts of things. But um, and and that's what really inspired my work with Baswell on this area. That's wonderful. Thank you for sharing, Angie. But I'm, I'm kind of keen just to explore that a little bit more. You know, you talked about Romania. That must have been very early in your career. Um, how did that actually affect your outlook as you began? Yeah, it was early in my career. It was actually before I qualified as a social worker. So for me, the impact of that was kind of making real all of the images that we were seeing on the TV and kind of that humane response of wanting, feeling compelled to do something you know, uh, and I guess now I would do something quite different. You, you know, at the time, I think I was 24, 23, um, just felt kind of compelled to go out there and, 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 and do something and, and, you know, work in the orphanage for a period of time and come back. But, but actually the impact it had on me was, was an, a real understanding of kind of trauma and what that means at different stages of people's lives but also actually doing things for people isn't it doesn't actually achieve anything it's doing things with people um so that's the impact it's had on me now i mentioned when i was doing the introduction that two years ago maris you joined me with professor lena dominelli and for an episode looking at the social work role in disaster scenarios And in that episode, we spent a fair amount of time discussing the definition of disasters. And I'd really encourage anyone who hasn't listened to that episode to go back and find it. It's easy to find. It's the first in the list. And I don't want to retread too much ground, but I do think a definition is really important here. In Out of the Shadows, the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Society's definition is summarised as, and here it goes, vulnerability plus hazard equals disaster. Angie, could you unpack that definition a little bit for me? Yeah, I guess it's about 
the definition is quite specific in terms of um, there are certain ingredients or elements that would um, work up to that definition. So there's something about that disaster being sudden or something that disrupts the kind of functioning of a, of a community and that causes, um, causes loss both um, economically and, and on, a, on a humane level, really. But one of the things that we found in writing the book, we put a call out to um, colleagues and friends with um, lived experience about um, their experience of, of disasters, working in disasters. And we were quite blown away, really, by how um, varied that definition was. And whilst there's this kind of formal definition, which is useful, it gives you a, a kind of framework. I think what I've learned is that whether it's a people were coming up with stories on a personal basis. So at the end of the day, a disaster is defined by the individual that um, experiences it. Um, and whether that's kind of something tragic like Hillsborough or Grenfell Tower Fire or a suicide of a loved one, it, it's a disaster on, on a human level that, that affects an individual, their family and the community. I think one of the most powerful things that Angie's kind of focused on is the contribution of individuals to the books and particularly people with lived experience and the voices of social workers who really haven't been heard before in that way. And I think it is the real focus of personal definition of disaster as well as the collective experience within community sense of disaster and I'm sure at some point we will cover the nuances of politics that can be played um, within the uh, public accountability of a disaster and whether people um, accept responsibility um, at a given time. But that's for a, a bigger discussion. Probably we may cover some of that today. But I think... And, and Maris, that would be that'd be relevant to both Hillsborough, which Mark's going to talk about, and also the Grenfell Tower. Oh, um, absolutely. Absolutely, Andy, and also in terms of the blood scandal, the blood infection scandal, in terms of uh, testing of vets, nuclear vet survivors. There are so many um, issues and a real call for public accountability that, as I say, we, we probably will cover. And I know I'm going off track here a little bit, but I feel Love so that. passionately about this. And I, it's something that as a core and a social work ethic in terms of social justice and our real advocacy for equality. And I think with all, all of the disasters um, that we've covered in the book, or the majority of them, there were certainly issues of inequality from a perspective of class, gender, um, disability. You know, when we look at the inequalities that also related to COVID and the impact for adults with learning disability and autistic adults. So I think there is something here, both what happens at an individual level, a community level, but there is also a, a big issue here about public accountability. Um, and hopefully we, we will cover that in, in some of the discussion. Absolutely. And this is a mammoth topic. It's a really fantastic book. If anyone hasn't read the book, I would encourage them to, to get a hold of it. We are probably going to come back and make a second episode. So anything which isn't covered now, we hope to cover most likely in the new year. Just when you're talking there, though, um, Maris, uh, in terms of vulnerability um, and 
disaster's not impacting everybody equally. You know, in that equation, vulnerability plus hazard equals disaster. COVID being a good example of that, not everybody was equally vulnerable. We do know that certain groups were uh, more impacted. We do know that the interests of certain groups, you mentioned people with learning disabilities, weren't always taken into consideration. So disasters won't always impact everybody equally. Oh, absolutely. And I think that is, um, that's mirrored both at an international level. It's also mirrored in terms of um, how other countries, richer countries, for example, respond to disasters. But there is no doubt that in many disasters, the, there is the inequality, the, the, the light is shone in terms of inequality. And when you look at what happened during COVID in this country and people um, being sent into environments when, for example, they were uh, positive in terms of COVID-positive uh, COVID results or they were asymptomatic, I think there is, um, again, a real measure of who we value, who we support and whose voices we truly hear, particularly in this country. Margaret, you have been affected in the most terrible way by what has become known as the Hillsborough disaster. James, your 18-year-old son, was one of 97 people who were unlawfully killed on the 15th of April 1989 at the FA Cup semi-final match between Liverpool and Nottingham Forest. Margaret, would you be able to tell us a little bit about James? Um, well, where do I start? Because, you know, I don't want it to sound like a cliche, but James was such a good living boy. Uh, it was just, as I say, just 18. That was his first away game. He was a Christie Berg fanatic. He loved Christie Berg. And I know Christie Berg was at concert. At that particular day, he would have got to see Christie Berg rather than got to see Liverpool. But as I say, that was his first away game. He was a very generous, caring, just a loving, beautiful, loving son. In fact, people many a time say to me how, how beautiful he was, how handsome he was, how good looking he was. That doesn't come into it, really. I knew he was good looking. I knew he was really handsome. I knew he had beautiful set of teeth. I, I knew I was in love with my son. I didn't just love him as a son. I was in love with my own son. He was that kind. He was that generous. I always remember um, when his dad reached 50 and James was just 18. It's a day I'll not forget. He, he came home from work and he knocked on the door. And when I opened the door, James has stood there with this big black bin bag, a big black bin bag. And I said, you've got your key, why have you knocked on the door? He said, I couldn't open the door with this, Mum. I said, what is it? And he said, it's a gift for me, Dad. And I said, well, what is it? And he said, well, where's my dad? I said, he's out with the dog. He's walking the dog, he'll be home shortly. So when he came, he came in and we went into the other little room, and he took the bag off this thing and it was a guitar. Uh, and oh. it was a guitar and he said, I bought this for me dad. He said, and I'll never forget because I always worried about them going into debt. I hated any form of debt. I didn't have monetary things, but I was very careful with everything we had we paid for. And he went, and I know what you're going to say, mum. Have I got into debt for this? Well, there's the receipt. I've been paying it every week for weeks now. Hmm. 
he said at my wages. And I thought, oh my God, your dad is going to love that. It's, it's, it's a treasure to your dad. And he goes, and don't worry, I know your birthday's coming up soon, he said, and I've got something put away that I've been paying for for weeks for you as well. So you're not getting left out. And when his dad came in, I said, Jim, I said, James wants to see you in the other room. And I always remember Jim going in and I stood behind him. And James said, Dad, this is for you for your birthday. And the first thing Jimmy said is, oh, I hope you've not gone into bloody death for this. And I said, Jim, he said, I knew my dad would say that, Mum. I said, there's the receipt. He's been paid. Oh, look how many weeks he's been paying that for. And been paying it up. And um, Jimmy was just had a tear in his eye. And he said, James, I don't know what to say. And he said, Dad, all you have to say is, when you play it, always remember me. Which I thought was very weird when I think back on at the time. I thought, how weird is that for him to say? So he said, just when you play it, always remember me. Now, Jimmy couldn't play the guitar. He could strum a guitar and he could strum a tune. But I thought, oh, my goodness, what funny. I said, what do you mean, James? When you get it back, you always remember me and your dad. Look at it that way. And he went, okay, mum. So that's how caring he was. That's how unselfish he was. He was only on a small wage. But to do that every week Mm. for his dad, to me, meant so much. And I never found out what it is he was getting me, but I do believe he had something somewhere ready, but I don't know where. And it doesn't matter. And Margaret, in the book, you share so poignantly about James. I mean, I'll be honest, I cried my eyes out reading that section. I really did. What I wanted to ask you was, you know, in Out of the Shadows, you describe the pain of your loss um, and mm. you write that you can't recover from losing a child. You learn to live with it. You know, I know that you were so, so impacted as a family, but I also understand that the trauma of Hillsborough has affected the wider community. So, you know, in addition to the people who were killed, 766 people were injured and hundreds of families have been left bereft. Can you tell me a bit about how the disaster impacted you personally, but also how it impacted communities throughout Liverpool? Well, it's a strange thing, really, because obviously if you go into Liverpool, um, I've got a friend with me here now who lost a brother, so who's sitting at the side of me, just facing me, actually. And she would tell you, I go into Liverpool, we go into Liverpool, people pull me up who recognise you. And... You'd be surprised how many people it was associated with James or maybe Graham, Sue's brother. People, there's that many people were affected and it affected so many. But the most important thing is, and I think what people have got to learn, and it's about social workers really, is you have the, so many people visiting you at the time of that disaster that sometimes you just want to be left alone mm-hmm. to wallow in your own, if the word I'll use, to wallow in your pain, your grief, your anxiety, not just for yourself, but for your family, for your children, for your husband who was there on the day. And I, I've got to say, these people go away after a certain time, length of time. They go away. But the social worker was always there. Mm-hmm. And to me, that is what it's... A, the persistence, and I know that's going off the question, what you've just asked me a bit, really. But my message is the persistence of social workers. Don't give up. 
Be like the families. We didn't give up. Don't give up on people who might shut the door in your face or who might shout at you. I hope you get trained for the anger that some people feel. They take it out onto the people that come knocking on the door. And you said, Margaret, you were angry at first with the social worker. That was your reaction. Mm. Isn't that right? Tell us, tell us a bit more. And listen, don't, don't you worry for a second about going off the question. I want to hear your story. But, you know, in terms of, in terms of that anger you felt, tell us about that first encounter. Well, I, I always remember the knock came at the door. I, I didn't answer the door. I think it was one of my children who answered the door. And they said, there's a, a lady here, mum, to see you. And I, I remember thinking, that I don't want to see any lady. I don't want to see anybody. I, and it's a terrible thing because you don't realise you're impacting what your words are impacting on your siblings, your children as well. And I turned around and said, have they got your brother with, with them? I remember saying that, and they just, no, mum. And I would shut the door, I don't want to see anybody. Just shut the door. And they didn't shut the door. Obviously, they were brought up better than that. They would not shut the door in anybody's face. How many kids, uh, James, and uh, you have other kids then, um, Margaret? Yeah, I've got another four children. Oh, wow, James, okay, okay. James was my eldest. Yes. And I had another, another four under James. And, Sorry uh, to interrupt. So the door, the door wasn't shut. The social worker. No, the there. door wasn't shut. Um, and that was. Uh, I'm not sure whether it was my eldest son who was 16 at the time. David uh, just went to the door and very politely said, "Look, my mum doesn't want to see anybody at this moment." Um, they said, "We'll tell her. We'll call again." And shut the door. And I said, "Well, who was it? Did they give the name?" Uh, I don't think they did, but he was in a stressful state anyway, so he obviously wasn't taking If she did give a name, he wasn't taking it in. Shut the door. But to make a, a long story short, her name was Antoinette. She was Irish. I'd love to see her again, but obviously they've done it, tried to look for her and they can't find her. But she was persistent. And what I loved about her, she kept, Persistent and persistent. She kept knocking. She kept putting little notes through my letterbox to say I will call again. But I always thought a social worker was coming to see if you've done anything wrong to your children. I got the wrong impression. I've done nothing wrong. When I eventually let her in, I just said to her, uh, I, I absolutely adore my children. I let my son go, but other people to look after and they didn't do the job. Uh, so, so what have you come here for? To take my children away from you? I honestly got, got the wrong impression from a social worker. And I think that needs to be stressed also, so that sometimes people are under the impression when they hear bad things about children being abused, the social worker gets the blame. It's not the social worker's fault. If they keep persisting, like Antoinette did, she helped us so much and got me through so much at Christmas. My first Christmas without my son. She was so good and so kind. Because I didn't drive a car then. She took me to the cemetery to my son. All I wanted to do is go to my son. So a social worker, my message is, don't give up on anybody. If they get angry with you, they don't mean it. They don't mean it. It's just the way they're feeling. They've got to take their anger and vent out. Not on the family, they take it out on anybody who's at that door. 
So don't give up on anybody. Everybody has different ways, ways of dealing with grief. And my way was taking that angry out on a social worker. And the support that Antoinette did give you, it was, uh, it was both practical and emotional support then. Would you be able to ex- explain a bit more about what um, Antoinette was doing that, that was a help? Well, it was, uh, especially when you look back, I look back over these years and I think of how old my other children were. Now I had a, a young daughter who was only six going on for seven, a daughter nine going on for 10, a son 10 going on for 11. And David was, because I went to eight years before I had my last three. And David was, well, he was just 15 going on 16 actually at the time. And the role she played was trying to make Christmas for my children. Hmm. It's the only way I can put it. I didn't want Christmas. I didn't want nothing. I wasn't interested. Because I was on a, can I explain this maybe this way? I was like on an elastic band. What do you mean by that, Margaret? Well, I wanted to be with James, but I didn't want to leave my other children. So I felt as if I was in the middle getting pulled. How could I have Christmas when James loved Christmas with his family and he's not here? Uh, sorry if I go off on Mom. Uh, not, not in the slightest, Margaret, not in the slightest. It still gets to me 30 odd years on. How much I still miss him. Um, and I felt, how can I do Christmas? How can I put a train up? How can I do anything for these children when my, their elder brother's not here for them? Antoinette helped me to get through that. She just turned around and said, right, let's get the tray out. Where's the tray? I'll do it. You go in the other room. It's got like a little tiny parlour where James used to sit. And I sat there and I, could, I went back into the living room and there it was, the tree was up. Little decorations on it. The children, you could see the smile on their faces. And then she said, now the next step is you, what do you need to do? I said, that's the children done, what do you need? And I said, I need to go and see James. Not that I was going to see James, but I need to go. And I didn't have a car. And it was two buses to get to James. I had to drive. We'll take you to James. That was the part, the social work. She didn't have to do that. But that was a great help to me because when I got to James, it sounds ridiculous. I still talk to him at the cemetery. I talk to him even now to this day. I said, you should have seen the washing I had yesterday, son, and not one of it's yours. Not one bit of it was yours. Stupid thing like that. And I, I just said, James, forgive me, but this Christmas is going to have to happen for the children. You'd want that for your brothers and sisters. But I'll still put the plate out for you. You're still with us. And that helped me. And I can't thank Antoinette enough for that. So she got me through my first Christmas, which was, as I say, the worst thing ever, really. And she helped my children and, and the siblings. That's the main thing. And I think Margaret's message about sustainability 
and sticking with the pain is really, really important for social workers. And I think we do offer a unique contribution in terms of a lens of looking at holistic needs in a time of crisis and in a time of disaster. And it's not about doing to, it's about doing with. And I think Margaret's message is there, you know, what is really powerful is Antoinette was seeing the needs in that context of the kids who at that moment did want Christmas and understandably as children in terms of what they were going through as part of their bereavement and also seeing what Margaret needed and in that moment to go to the cemetery and that is what good social work is about. That is what good social work is about. And it's how we as a profession really advocate that in these situations, social workers are not there for the short term. You know, budget cuts is not the answer. You know, when people say, well, we can't do anything because of budget cuts, you can only have a social worker for this amount of time. If we're really, really going to get a responsive approach to disasters and supporting victims and bereaved and survivors and communities it's working with and that takes time um and thank you maris margaret you talk about in the book about how important it is and you mentioned earlier how important it is that social workers aren't perceived as intruding on a family's grief so what i've heard from you is that antoinette actually supported you in your grief she helped you mm. to grieve she took you to james um and that yeah that compassion that sort of it's 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 it's, it's i dare say it's a unique aspect of social work you know, other caring professions, there are, you know, many other caring professions, but in terms of having that compassion to support, work with, it's one of the things that does tend to set social work apart from um, some of our other colleagues. Yeah, I, I agree with what you've said in there, but I also think it's important to emphasise as well, like, you know, what Antoinette done, I mean, it took her quite a while to be allowed into me, if you see what I mean because I, I, I still felt it was like an intrusion okay. into my private grief and my pain. And I didn't realise though at the time about my children's grief. You know, I, I was just concerned about my own grief, my own sorrow. And I didn't give a, a, a thought about what my poor children were going through until one particular day. I remember James used to sit in, like we called it, the parlour room. And James used to sit in the parlour and used to play his Christy Berg records all the time. And he'd have his headphones on like these, he'd have headphones on. And we'd be sitting, and one particular day he took the headphones off and I could hear this song sailing away. Well, I'd heard it such a, so many times, I used to say, James, I wish Christy Berg would bugger off and sail away for good. I said, because I'm sick of listening to it. Uh, and... I realised this and this day that Antoinette had took me to the cemetery another time. And I'm going a little bit off the subject, but trying to bring into perspective about the role of the social workers at the same time. She took me to the cemetery another time. And when we came back, I went straight into the parlour where James used to sit because I left his I always left his headphones exactly how he left them. In case he ever came home, I used to think he's going to come home and he's going to be able to use them. And they'd been moved. Uh, they'd been moved. And I just went hysterical. And little did I realise my poor elder boy at the time, David then, who was just going on 16, 
They took them upstairs to his room and put them on to listen to some of James. So when James come, David come down the stairs, I bawled at him. I said, you've not asked James, could you borrow them? And he just got upset and he ran up the stairs. Just got an answer. I said, Margaret. She said, come on, settle down. She said, I'll have a word with David. I said, what have I done? What have I, what have I said to him? What have I said to him? That's how bad the pain was, the grief was for all of us. And David come down and he went, Mum, I'm awful sorry. I only borrowed them because I wanted to listen to the record that our James used to listen to. And then I realised Antoinette was trying to deal with both of us then, you know, to try to sort both of us out. I apologised to David and he said something about the words he used. I didn't only lose my brother, my best friend, but I've lost the mum and dad that I used to have. And that really got to me. That really, really, I thought, oh my God, what am I doing to my children? And then Antoinette <clears throat> got us together and we had a, a, a good conversation between each other. And I, I can't thank her enough. She's done so much. I'd love to say to thank her for what she done. And then another time I was sitting there and I, I was hardly eating, to be honest with you. I hardly ate. I know it sounds ridiculous after so many months, but I lost a lot of weight. I went down to five stone, something because I just wanted to die. I couldn't carry on with the pain that I was feeling. And I remember Kerry, who was only nine at the time, tend to come in to me and said, Mum, I don't want you to die like my brother. Please don't die. That, and that hit home as well. That it wasn't just my grief. It wasn't my personal grief. It was theirs as well. And then poor, my poor husband who tried to calm everything down and do things. He was at the game that day as well. I must have put him through hell. I did put him through hell. Because it was just as if James was just mine and nobody else's. And he wasn't. He was part of all of us. They all felt that pain. So the social worker, the role of social workers, I know sometimes they get a bad name, which they do. They get blamed for things that it's not their fault out of their hands. But I say, no, don't ever give up on people, no matter how they shout at you. Let them take it out on you. They don't mean it. You know, they'll get over it. But they will need you one day when everybody else has gone. They will need the social worker. Thank you so much, Margaret. You're, it's just, it's, yeah. I can listen to you talk all day. Um, I'm, I'm aware it's taking a toll on you as well. Um, thank you. You've been incredibly generous, both in the book and also what you've shared with us mm -hmm. today. In the book, there are a number of disasters discussed. So Hillsborough, also Grenfell Tower, the Manchester Arena bombing, and the attacks on Westminster Bridge and London Bridge. But perhaps the most widespread disaster to have impacted the UK in recent years, it also mentions the COVID pandemic. Maris, do you think that the pandemic has been appropriately recognised as a disaster within the social work profession, but also by society more widely? I'd say at the beginning of the pandemic and the lack of preparedness, the contact that Basil was having from social workers really highlighted that people were perceiving this 
as a disaster and something totally unprecedented to them, both in their profession, but also in their personal lives. So some of the emerging themes that came out is people's lack of access to PPE, um, moral distress in terms of dealing with the support that needed to be offered at such a large scale, the concerns about total infrastructure breakdowns, community resources that were no longer there because people were not allowed to make contact initially directly in person. We heard, for example, about uh, domestic abuse refuges that closed, um, support services to the elderly. And although there was a revisioning that that did take place in terms of the changes throughout those initial two years, I would say that the impact and the contact that we had from members was absolutely immense and the personal toll that it took on people as well. So, for example, in the first week, I remember getting phone calls from social workers about undertaking visits and the concerns about those visits, the safety of their own families and really struggling with ethics and values about that at a political level and a wider society level, I think some people really struggle with the term disasters. And going back to the earlier point that I raised at the beginning of this discussion, and I think that comes down to public accountability. We've got a COVID inquiry that's taking place, COVID-19 inquiry. Um, Let's hope there is transparency, there is honesty, there are terms like disaster used. It will be interesting to see. So I think it's a real mixture in terms of responses, Andy. I think some social workers will have seen it as a disaster and owned it as a disaster. I think other social workers, if we're honest, there can be something about a profession that we always have to be perceived as coping individually and professionally. We've covered some of that in in the book as well. Um, and people being honest to themselves about what's going on. I think at a wider society level, I think there has been absolute um, horrific examples of suffering during this time. Let's hope some of those stories are heard as part of the public inquiry. In terms of public inquiry, I mean, if we look at what happened in Hillsborough, we had, I think, 32 years of of lies and cover-up. Coming back to COVID, do you have confidence that the inquiry is going to be genuine? The inquiry is going to look at what actually needs to be looked at? I'm I'm hopeful. I'm not saying it's going to happen. Where I'm hopeful is that you have got campaigners now coming together and pushing for public accountability. So Hillsborough Law now, you know, is is a campaign collective of survivors and family members of people that were directly affected by Hillsborough, by Grenfell, by the blood scandal, as mentioned earlier. And I think if we get a real groundswell of growth of people being prepared to speak out about the wrongs and social injustices of also that went on during COVID, and as part of those spokespeople, we need to have social workers. We need to have social workers telling their story. We need to have social care workers telling their story who were trying to support people in the most awful situations, both at a community level, but in residential services, when they were left at times without PPE and 
and appropriate support in their structures when people were being discharged from hospital positive. And, and what we've done to many, many communities is mirrored in terms of what happened with Hillsborough, what happened with Grenfell. And from a professional perspective and a social work perspective, you know, the Basel Code of Ethics talks about social justice and equality. The International Federation uh, of Social Workers and the global definition of social work talks about the key words like empowerment, working with communities. And that's what social workers have got to do in this context. And we've got to make sure and really rally and advocate that that inquiry is transparent and open. Yeah, I totally agree with many of the points, if not, you know, all of the points that Maris has has made there. I guess as well, kind of socially and politically, we're at a stage where people are fed up. You know, people are fed up. There's, there's, um, and we're at a stage where we want to hold people to account, you know, and we've got groups like the ones that um, Margaret's been involved with to thank in terms of um, setting a blueprint that that you don't give up that you know disasters aren't a one-off event um, it, you know the cameras might go away but the the pain stays forever so I think there is a groundswell to get people in authority whether they're politicians or CEOs of, of, of big companies and be held to account people have died and are continuing to die can I and we need can I interrupt you if you don't mind to yeah, say yeah. something I think also why I think this Hillsborough law now is so important for everybody in any disaster but also not just about disasters it's about individuals who lose somebody on their own as well. They're just as important to get accountability. For for Hillsborough didn't get accountability. We got the truth. And we got the truth through our campaigning, through our fighting, through our not giving up. But the Hillsborough law will now, and it's a terrible thing to have to say, but to have to have within the Hillsborough law a duty of candour, now, I was brought up to believe that you trust the police, that you listen to a policeman, they will guide you, they will help you. Well, unfortunately, about Hillsborough, they lied. And they lied and lied after lie. And to me, it's so important to have that duty of candour in the Hillsborough law, but also to make it a level playing field for everybody, because we had to go out. We weren't only fighting the establishment. We were fighting the press as well. We were campaigning to try and raise funds to get to the stage that we are now. To, and not only where we are now, but where we are now will help others. As you said earlier on before, and you, Maris, that through our campaigning, it's opened the doors to a lot of other things. We set a president, a president in the uh, at the inquest, and they were through the pen portraits. They are so important for individuals. Some families don't. I don't want to put down on paper about my child, but when I went to meet some of the Grenfell families, that was one of the things that I advised them: please do do a pen portrait because they are not just a number; they are individuals. 
And if you look now at the, uh, not the Greb, but the arena bombing, there was a lot of saying the narratives was exactly the same principles of what happened at Hillsborough. And that's what we've been fighting against. Now, the medical services, the emergency services didn't go in to these poor people, who, young children and everything, who could have been saved. And that's what we were campaigning, not only for Hillsborough. We're not campaigning for us now. But my, my passion is to see this Hillsborough law through. It'll do no good to our 97. But hopefully, all them disasters that you just mentioned, Maris, they will never be treated the way the Hillsborough families were. And that is so important. Margaret, we heard an awful lot in recent months about, you know, how families were impacted. Families who lost a loved one during COVID um, while rules were being broken by the rule makers in government, particularly in Number 10 Downing Street, the impact that that had in terms of their grief. Now, don't, don't answer this if it's too much, but looking back over the lies that you were told um, as a bereaved mother, the, the cover-up um, by policing and the establishment after, after Hillsborough, what did that do to you in your grief? Um, how did that make things worse? Well, the cover-up made it a hell of a lot worse because, as I said earlier on, we were fighting against the press. Now, that cover-up began in the very first days of the disaster happening. And that the media, when that went out in a certain newspaper, a few days later, that went all over the world. That didn't only just stay in this country. That headline went all over the world about Liverpool people. And to me, that really impacted on our grief. In fact, it made it worse. I lost my mother. She always said to me, losing my grandson was enough, but this is going to kill me. Tried to blame my son, my grandson, and them families and the survivors for the deaths of the, their own deaths. That will kill me. My mum died not long after. Then my father died. Then I lost a brother. I've had a lot of things, but nothing like in the sense of James. But at the same time, that really affected me and all of our families because that cover-up was an absolute, utter, utter disgrace. That's what made us get. Can I give you a, a, an instance? I'll give you an instance, and I don't mind telling this if you don't mind. So don't put no, your I'd hand up to stop me. So don't put your hand up to stop me. Figure this out. Try and figure this out yourself. The generic inquest, okay? At the generic inquest, there was evidence brought forward from Taylor, and that was the inquiry from the very early days when... Four, four months in, wasn't it? He was a Lord Justice. Yes, right, yeah. yeah, that was the inquiry. And the police gave evidence to that inquiry. Now, some of that inquiry went forward... From Some of that evidence, sorry, went forward to the generic inquest. And because of that, a part of that, we got accidental death verdicts, right? We have a trial on Mr. Duckenfield, all them years later. And we had a trial on Denton, 
Foster, if my memory serves me well, and Metcalf. And just, just tell us who those are. Duckenfield was the chief superintendent, wasn't he, there on the day? Yes. And then... Uh, uh, Metcalf was, I, correct me if I could be corrected if I'm wrong, I'm sure he was the safety, safety officer. And uh, what was dead uh, today? He was a, 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 a policeman anyway. Now, the trial on them three got stopped after so many weeks on a technicality. What was the technicality? That when the police gave the evidence at Taylor, they went under oath. Figure that out. Doesn't really make sense, Margaret. It doesn't make sense at all whatsoever, does it? They weren't under oath. So why was that evidence allowed to go in front of Popper at the generic inquest but get thrown out? But what's the implication? If they weren't under oath, are they saying they weren't telling the truth? Are they they admitting that they lied? You know, that doesn't make sense. Exactly. Exactly. So think about all of that. And that's why it's so important when I say a duty of candour, what Mary said earlier on as well, correct. Full disclosure. Full disclosure to families and a level playing field that they get so much to fight their case that the loved ones, the families of the loved ones get the same amount to be able to fight their defence. And defence against what? Why were we defending our loved ones, 97 innocent victims? But that's what we were doing from day one. And that's what we carried on for, and we want to make sure it never happens again to any other person in this country. Thank you, Margaret. And, you know, having that that full disclosure will be so important in relation to helping families deal with the trauma that they have experienced. And it's that, it's that issue I want to talk about now in relation to trauma. There was an example in Out of the Shadows. Um, it was a, a contributor called Zoe Dainton. Um, she su- survived the Grenfell Tower fire. Um, and she said that afterwards she was asking herself questions like, you know, am I ever going to recover from this? Am I ever going to be able to sleep with the light off? Am I ever going to be able to enter a high rise building again? You know, what I want to ask Angie Maris, does our system fully recognise these traumas and are social workers adequately trained to support victims and survivors who've experienced that sort of trauma? I think what Zoe's story and, you know, Margaret as well, and everyone we've spoken to, what it emphasises is disasters is not a one-off event, you know, um, and I think that's where the social work role is so different and unique that our um, colleagues in the emergency services do a fabulous job um, there and then, but when everything's gone away, like Antoinette knocking on the door, it's social work. It's the social worker that tips up. So we do a lot as a social work educator. Um, I can kind of reassure people we do a lot about trauma um, and and trauma informed approaches as well. Because of my particular interest in in social work in disasters. I do a section with our undergraduate and postgraduate social work students um, and I always call, I, the message I leave with them is we need to be more Antoinette, yeah, um, that, that we need to persist, um, that we need to keep knocking on the door. So I think this, and, and students are always surprised that social work has got a role in that. I can see them kind of thinking, what's she going on about? 
you, you know, um, which is a, a common look, by the way. Um, but but it's, it's it's kind of explained. So it's not just Margaret made a really good point about that misunderstanding of why that social worker's knocking on Margaret's family's home. There's not just a misunderstanding in the general public, but even within the profession that, that social work has got a crucial role in disasters. So there's a lot of education to do, and I'm sure Maris can talk about kind of the CPD um, and BASWA work around that area as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's really positive to hear what's happening in terms of your particular HEI environment, Angie, and also your passion, I think, really shines through. I'm not sure that every social worker is trained in terms of trauma-informed practice, and there is still no mandatory training in this country for social workers in terms of the role of social workers in disasters and all that that brings. And there has been fantastic work, you know, with Margaret, with other uh, people with lived experience who have given so generously with their time on a voluntary basis to shape some of the work that Baswa England has done and the CPD uh, development programme that we've put together for social workers. And there are also some very specialist courses, for example, Professor Lena Dominelli has developed a, a, a master's course uh, in Sterling in relation to this work. But there is no mandatory training, no mandatory training. So it, it's still based on the goodwill of trainers and educators and social work curricula, um, but it's optional. It is not mandatory. And I suppose my call for, and as a professional call for, is if we're really going to make a difference going forward, there is something about the unique contribution of social work that we've talked about today being supported to develop this role even further and to get it on the books in terms of mandatory training and education. And what I'd also just like to say that also, I don't think every social worker is cut out for this work. And there can be a place and a time that it isn't appropriate for a social worker to be supporting somebody in terms of disaster response or disaster recovery. Um, and Margaret shared with me some other stories and other people have in terms of, of out of the shadows of some social workers that do, did not, at that given moment, have the compassion, have the kindness, and actually the effective communication strategies and knowing how to work with people, not to people. And I think we've got to be brave as a profession as well, that there are times we don't get it right, and there are times that people do not have the skills at a given time to support people in this moment. So how do we support the profession? I think it should be about supporting social workers to be on uh, systems, rotor systems, both locally and at a national level to support this work, and also to embed trauma-informed practice, both at a national level and local level, and that's across the UK. And there's lots of shared learning from colleagues all over the nations. Um, but we've got to recognise that not everybody is cut out for this work. What, what, whatever the, the national narrative is, um, that every social worker should be able to do this, I think um, we, we've got to be honest and pragmatic and listen to the people that we're working with. Uh, and just finally, one example also is about the support systems to social workers themselves. So um, a survivor from Grenfell 
talk to me about the, the, the social worker that she was allocated to, and that social worker shared her story as well, who was saying, sadly, she went to so many funerals, one after the other, and she said she came to a point where she felt really numb and she didn't experience any professional support or debriefing herself. So I think we need to recognise the trauma, the secondary trauma that workers go through as well. Thank you, Maris. And I think that would be a really good issue to pick up in the subsequent episode we make on this subject. My script didn't go out the window, but it hasn't been finished. There's lots that I still wanted to talk about. There's lots that we're going to come back and talk about again. Maris, Angie, Margaret, thank you so much for joining me today on Let's Talk Social Work. It's been great talking to you. Margaret, hats off to you. Thank you so much for sharing. It's incredible. You've you've given so much. Thank you. You're very welcome.